If your heart beats passionately for people who have wandered far from God, this series, Eats with Sinners, explores the characteristics of Jesus everyone desires. Good morning, Quarterstone. It's a coincidence that my name is actually Timothy, so it all worked out. I'm just kidding. All right. Like I told him before, uh, everybody put your tray tables up, buckle up your seatbelts because it could be a bumpy ride. So if it gets too scary, just close your eyes and uh, we'll all get through it together. <laughs> but, uh, if you've been here before, we're going through this sermon series, Eats with Sinners. In this series, we talk about qualities that made Jesus uh, who he was and that made people want to leave their old ways and follow him. Some of these qualities include integrity, humanity, redemptive suffering, his mission, tolerance, and resolve, just to name a few. These are all qualities that we can take out into the mission field and shine as examples of Christ. These are qualities that set us apart from others. These are qualities that if we have and we take out, people will know there's just something a little different about us. So I hope you take these to heart. Practice them and do what you can to let them shine. But before I get started, I'd just like to take a little time to give you, on back, give you a little background on uh, how I wound up here in front of you today. So I told Bob on several occasions that at some point during my spiritual walk, I would like to teach a Sunday morning sermon. And it's one of those things where you ask something, but you don't really expect anybody to actually come back to you and say, hey, I'd like you to stand up here. So uh, watch what you ask at this church. <laughs> so I received a text from Bob at the end of March and said that um, he would like me to teach and it would be about mercy. So I got really excited. I was like, well, finally I get my chance. I get to stand up here. But as I thought about it, I kind of got that kicked in the gut feeling, that kind of feeling that when you're in school and you had a test and you've known about it for a couple weeks, but you didn't study for it, that kind of feeling. But then I thought, I was like, well, it's about the parable of the Good Samaritan, so that's all right. That's not so bad at all because I get paid to help people. And I don't mind stopping and helping people along the side of the road or pitching in where needed. So this shouldn't be too awful bad. There are two aspects of this story that I struggle with. And that is the mercy aspect and the loving your neighbor. And on top of that is showing love to your enemy. So let me give you a little context into that and why I struggle with that. Is by profession, uh, I'm a conservation officer or a game warden, as some of you might know. And law enforcement officers are not usually known for their mercy. Law enforcement officers are known for their unbiased enforcement of the law. And usually when you think of a police officer, you think you're receiving a ticket. Very rarely do you hear the story of mercy or love that's given on the side of the road. And one of the things that reinforces that, during the academy, uh, you spend 29 weeks, and each day we had a code of ethics. And one part of this code of ethics that stuck out in my mind states, no compromise for crime 
and with relentless prosecution of criminals. And I took this to heart. And taking this to heart, later on in my life, it taught me a very hard lesson of mercy. So I found that mercy, it comes at a cost, either to the person that gives it or to the one that receives it. So I received a little context into that. I received a call some time back about somebody spotlighting deer in a rural portion of Pennsylvania County. Um, so if you're not familiar with that, it's when someone drives down the road and they shine a light out the window and try to kill a deer. So I get out, find an area, I set up, I work a lot of late nights doing what I can to bring this person to justice. So about 1.30 in the morning, I'm sitting in this field by myself, in the middle of the night, and I see this vehicle come by slowly. See the vehicle stop, I see a light come out the window. All right, so now I'm excited. This is what I prepared for my whole life. This is the part. So, you know, just like a typical cop, you come out, you make a line of stealthy approach, you get out to them, and just imagine yourself, 1.30 in the morning, not a light around, and all of a sudden, boom, you got blue lights going on, out of nowhere, car gets over, puts it in the ditch. Now, what I learned is that when you sneak up on somebody like that and you hit them that quick, you've got about 15 or 20 minutes to get the truth because after that, they've then formulated a plan. So I was able to get them in there. They were all kind of nervous and razzled, but got them out. And it was just me, three other guys. My backup was about 30, 35 minutes away. So, but I was able to get them out, found the guns, found the spotlight. So I was like, bingo, this is it. I was on cloud nine. Everything I worked for culminated to that moment. But the bad part is you got to go to court for this stuff. So a couple months passed by, I go to court, worked hard, prepared for the case. So we get up. He's got a defense attorney, so they call me up. I get on my side of the court. They get on their side of the courtroom, and um, they separate the witnesses. So they separate us, and then they call me back. I tell my side of the story. And as I leave, I got a little pep in my step because I knew I'd done everything right. I prepared for it, had all the facts of the case. Everything was good. So then he had his chance. He gave his side of the story, and then they call me back for closing arguments. So the defense attorney, he gets up, looks at the judge, looks at me, and says, Your Honor, I know this gentleman, and if that's what he saw, my client done it. But he didn't mean it. He didn't mean no harm by it. He's a good guy. And I just kind of smiled because I thought, well, here is coming that sweet smell of justice. It's all over. I had a little smirk on my face. But the judge looks at me and says, not guilty. And I was absolutely mad beyond belief. I spent a lot of time and a lot of work. I didn't care about mercy. I didn't care about love. I cared about the relentless prosecution of criminals. But looking back on that day, I, I don't think I really understood mercy. And that there uh, may have been things in that guy's life where he needed mercy. That was what he needed that day. But I did learn that uh, the mercy given that day changed my life. But it came at a cost. It came at a cost to that man because he had lost money, time, and more than likely sleep. 
But he was shown mercy. You could see it in the way his demeanor changed. There was a huge weight that was lifted off of his shoulders. And if you've ever received mercy, you can attest that it is life-changing, even just for a day. So just think about going down the interstate. You're running with your speeding buddy down the road. He's a little bit ahead of you. You see the blue lights. He gets pulled over, and you get to smile and drive on by him. Think about that change, because after that, you're going like 10 miles under the speed limit, and you're just creeping along, doing everything right, right? That's that kind of mercy. Sometimes it's life-changing. Sometimes it just changes you for a couple hours, but it does change you. So as I prepared for this sermon, I realized that I didn't know what mercy was that day and that I still struggle with it today. And as a young Christian... I struggle with what it means to give mercy and to receive it. I struggle with trying to understand the cost that the Father and the Son paid for my mercy. But I think to understand mercy, you have to understand, um, and to understand the lesson today, you have to get back to the basics and know what mercy is and how to define it. All right, mercy is a, combat, a compassion or a forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's powers, or being lenient or compassionate treatment. Um, and the Latin word for it is mercies, which is price paid for something. So it's important to note that. If I can, next slide. So what's compassion? Because that's one of the key elements to it. And it is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with, and this is important, with the desire to alleviate it. So you have to see it, you have to feel it, and you have to respond to it. And the other part of it is forbearance, which is reference, uh, which is refraining from the enforcement of something, such as a debt, a right, or an obligation that is due. That is interesting, because I thought there would be some aspect of love. I thought that love would be part of that definition, but it's nowhere to be found. There's no synonym to it. As you look in the dictionary, it doesn't mention love. I always thought love and mercy was the same thing. And I don't think they are the same thing. But I do believe they go hand in hand. I think that if... That I think you have to have love to be able to show mercy. But the real difference in love and mercy is that mercy requires some sort of action. Mercy requires one to see feel, and then respond. Now, before we get into the lesson, I do have a, a quick World War II story uh, that I think will illustrate uh, the love and mercy that can come at unexpected times and places. And I think it will set the stage for the lesson we're going to have today. Now, just imagine yourself over the skies of Germany. It's December 20th, 1943. You're at the height of World War II. Lieutenant Charlie Brown, with the British Air Force, was flying his first bombing run as the commander of a B-17 called Yield Pub over Berman, Germany. The bomber was on the left side of the formation and was defended by uh, fighters and a flank gunner. Brown's for, uh, formation started taking on fire and two of the bombers were shot down. Brown's bomber took heavy damage to the left wing and it caused the crew to shut down the engines. This took them out of formation 
and left them vulnerable to enemy attack. Soon there were eight enemy fighters, fighter planes, uh, and the pub was all by itself and had to put up the good fight. It took down as many as three fighters before help could arrive, but not without more damage to the plane. The tail gunner was killed. Nine more of its crew members were badly injured. The left tail of the plane was damaged badly and torn apart. By this time, Brown was oxygen-deprived and was blacking out. On several occasions, his plane was dive-bombing, almost hitting trees. And just when things couldn't get any worse, he was met by a German fighter pilot, uh, Second Lieutenant Franz Stigler. He had just refueled and was one down plane away from the Knight's Cross. And the Knight's Cross is the highest honor that a German, uh, that a member of the German military can receive. So it's a pretty big deal. Stigler quickly flew up and got behind the bomber. He noticed the damage to the plane, but didn't know if the bomber was still able to defend itself. Stigler put his life on the line. This is important. He put his hands on his rosary beads that he kept in his jacket. He took his finger off the trigger and eased closer to get a better look. Stigler flew next to the cockpit, and Brown and Stigler locked eyes, and he could see the horror and shock on his face. Now, Brown had no way to communicate with him, but he tried to get him to land the plane, and Brown knew he just wanted to get himself and his crew back home. Brown stated that on several occasions, he's closed his eyes and just wanted the nightmare to be over. Stigler, seeing that they were headed towards England, motioned him to follow. Brown, still being scared, he done so. Stigler, still not knowing if there was enemy jets waiting on him or if they were still able to defend himself, still decided that he could see it, he still felt it, and he still responded. So Stigler escorted Brown back to open water, and right before the planes peel away, muttered the words, good luck and you're in God's hands. Now Stigler was not motivated by vengeance that day, even though he had every reason. These B-17s had been bombing his city and killing his people. His own brother was even killed by American fighters. He had every reason not to show love. So why would he show love and mercy? Stigler once studied to be a priest. Stigler knew that if he shot that plane down, it would be murder. And that was against his code. Now that's a true representation of God's love. Of what God's love can do to a man's heart in the midst of war. Stigler saw, he felt, and then responded. And to make this story, be- uh, to make this story better, they later, later met and became friends until their death. Now, this sets the stage for what's at the heart of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, guys, if you can give me the next slide, we're going to go ahead and read Luke 10, 25 through 37. You can either follow along on the screen or in your Bible. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Priests happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denaria, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra cost you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word, his revelation to us. And before we can really understand it, I think we need to look at this story as if we was a first century Jew. Before we can understand it, we must know what it meant to that person who was hearing this parable. And once we under, understand how they understood it, we too can dig deeper. Because at its surface, it's just a story of someone helping. But this story is not that shallow. But a story of love and mercy in the face of danger. The parable starts with an expert of the law and a lawyer, depending on your translation, asking Jesus, another rabbi or teacher, a single question. Now, the first thing I thought of was, what exactly is an expert of the law? Because this is a pretty, pretty important part to the story. And I looked at the Hebrew Orthodox Bible, and they called the expert of the law a Talmud Chechem. This was an honorary title that was given to a Torah scholar. He supervised religious activities and consulted the Jewish community in spiritual matters and worldly affairs. I like to think of him as a Jewish version of our own, of our own uh, Bob Paddock. So, he's the Jewish Bob Paddock. He asked Jesus what seems to be a harmless question, and one that I think that we've all asked at one point in our lives. And when you think about it, it's the reason why all of us are sitting here today. We all want to know how to live a life that will allow us to be with the Father and that will allow, allow us to live in a world without sorrow or pain. But this wasn't his motivation. He didn't ask from the heart. He wanted to test Jesus to find fault in his teaching. And that question he asked was, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And in typical Jesus' teaching style, he doesn't just answer him directly. It seems like every time you look in the Bible, he just doesn't say ABC. It's always a parable or a riddle or he talks in mysteries. So he didn't let us down here. He uh, asked the teacher of the law, 
what is written, and how do you read it? And I feel this was kind of left for us um, to help us along in our studies. Because it's our responsibility to know what's in the Bible. And we, we must ask ourselves, how do we read it? So often, we have a question about the Bible or religion. We just automatically ask someone or go to the internet and try to look up the answer. Well, I found out this is a horrible thing. In my job, I don't know how many times I go up to people and uh, we're on the side of the riverbank or on the side of the road and I ask them, well, did you know that? Well, I thought I was good. I asked my brother. I asked my uncle. It's usually horrible advice. Never, never just ask some random person that you think may know. Right? First, you need to read it. And then once you have a good understanding of it, and then you go to that second source. And that's the problem. Uh, because we don't take the time to read. We don't take the time to pray. We don't take the time to understand ourselves and then go to that second opinion for clarification. We must really meditate on the Word and allow the Holy Spirit to help us understand. Now, the expert responded, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agreed with him, but that was good enough, not good enough for the expert. So he followed it up with another question. And this next part is why I like some translations that say lawyer. Because in typical lawyer fashion, they always want to split hairs. They always want to limit something. So he wants to limit the definition of what a neighbor is. So he would be able to obey the law. They both knew that the ancient Jewish book of wisdom, the Sirach, tells its readers not to help sinners. And that even when you read Leviticus, it references any, anyone among your own people. So they both knew what he was trying to get at. So the expert wants to make that distinction that not everyone is a neighbor in the eyes of Jewish law. The expert wants the peace of mind that there are some people that are outside of God's love and that they are not worthy, worthy of his mercy and grace. And isn't that a sad thought? That there was times where there was people that thought they were outside of that mercy and grace. The reply from the expert that there are non-neighbors is what prompts Jesus to tell the, ex, uh, to tell the parable. And it starts with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. If you can cue the slide, guys. There we go. It's called the Way of Blood. It was a very rocky area with lots of places for thieves to hide. All right, It's kind of like the double bridge road of our day. So it's a very dangerous road. You never know who's going to jump out from behind bushes. So the Jewish historian Josephus described this road as being 18 miles long. A traveler would descend from Jerusalem's height of 2,500 feet above sea level to Jericho, which is a depth of, depth of some 825 feet below sea level. The descent was approximately six-tenths of a mile, and you went from a Mediterranean climate to an arid desert climate. So the expert of the law would have been very familiar with this road and probably had traveled it at some point. So the robbers took the man's belongings and left him half dead. 
And as he lays on the side of the road, both the priest and the Levite pass, pass him by. Now keep in mind, they did not simply just pass by him, but they made it the point to go to the other side of the road. They intentionally neglected the man and chose not to engage. Kind of like when you go into Walmart and the Girl Scouts are right there by the door and you see them. And you kind of sidestep and run around the back door so they don't see you. Because you know you've eaten way too many cookies. And summer's right around the corner. That's how they acted. They did not want to bear the cost. Now it is important to note that both the priest and the Levi were going down the road. So it's inferred that they've completed their obligation to temple work. So service in the temple would not have been an issue. But being that they both work in the temple... People knew that they couldn't come in contact with dead bodies uh, unless it met one of the exemptions. So to most people, it would have been justified why he passed by. But it wasn't that they passed by. They didn't even get close enough to see how badly the man was injured if he fell into one of those exemptions or to even give an encouraging word as he walked by. Now the last person was the Samaritan. And this is where the plot thickens. This is something that the expert of law was not expecting. And the reason so is if you look at Jewish hierarchy, it goes like this. Priest, Levite, Joseph's Jew, tax collector, outcast, sinner, Samaritan, and Gentile. So can you imagine being somewhere below a, Samarit or below a tax collector but above a Gentile? That basically puts you at the point where you're not going to receive Hanukkah cards and probably not get a fruitcake during the holidays. So it is a bad place to be. So we've understood that part. Now we have to understand the history of the Samaritan and the Jew. Now, you've all heard Bob say that we're all part of one big dysfunctional family when you get baptized. Well, it's the same here. It's one big dysfunctional family. There was a kingdom that all started with the kingdom split with Solomon. And the Samaritans claimed to be northern Israelites from the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh who survived the destruction of the northern kingdom uh, by the Assyrians. Now the Samaritans believed that they were the true line of high priests descending from Aaron. They also claimed that they were the true Israel who was descended of the ten lost tribes when taken into captivity. They had their own sacred place on top of Mount Gersom and claimed that it was the original sanctuary in the true holy place. Samaritans claimed that their version of the Pentateuch was the original, and the Jews had falsified the text produced by Ezra during the Babylonian exile. They also followed the Samaritan Torah, which they believe is the original, and to make things worse, they interfered with the building of the uh, second temple, and then the Jews retaliated with pouring pig's blood in the Samaritan temple. This is beyond that crazy holiday weekend or that one weird uncle that nobody talks about that kind of sits over in the corner. This is a story of true hatred. Now, with all that said, you can see why the expert did not enjoy this parable and what that it made for uncomfortable conversation. At this point, the expert probably had that face like he had just ate, eaten a lemon. But it was the Samaritan that stopped and helped the man, who was likely a Jew, and not another Jew, which is what you'd expect out of the story. Now, the Samaritan did not just simply stop and ask the man if there was something he could do to help. He did not just call 9 1 
911 to say a crime had been committed. No, the Samaritan did not just pass on the other side of the road like the priest and Levite. He went straight to the man to show love and mercy. He put himself in harm's way to bandage his wounds and to pour on oil and wine. The love does not stop there. He put the man on his own donkey and rode him to the inn and cared for him. Now just stop and think about seeing somebody on the side of the road that you don't like. You put him in your car and you walk to Danville beside that car. Sounds ridiculous. But that's what he done. He even gave the innkeeper two days wages to care for the man and was willing to pay the extra cost upon his return. The Samaritan saw, he felt, he responded. He gave all he had and was willing to give more regardless of who the other person was and no thought to whether that person actually deserved the help. There was no discussion in his head of what a neighbor truly is. You can cue the next slide. Margaret Thatcher said no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he had only had good intentions, but he had money as well. And that's what keyed me to it. I couldn't imagine taking two days of my wages and giving to somebody I don't like. I've got cousins and brothers that ask for money, and I won't give them a dollar, much less giving two days wages to somebody like that. But that's what he done. Jesus then asked the expert, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And I'd have loved to have been there to see the look on his face. I would say it was this look of disdain, kind of that grumpy cat face you see on the internet. That's what I'd say he looked like. I would say at that point he knew Jesus had performed the ultimate mic drop and walked away. But the expert could not just stand there in disappointment. He had to say something because he knew Jesus what Jesus was saying was true. And just like the rest of us, um, he was clouded by selfish pride. And the expert couldn't even bring himself to mention the man's race. He just responded, the one who had mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. To me, that was the wow moment. I know that we listen to this story and it doesn't have the same shock factor. Um, but this is a pretty radical concept to the first century Jew. This went from a members-only club to an all-inclusive club where everyone's allowed. We need to stop worrying about trying to determine if someone's a neighbor, if they, if they are worthy of love, but apply the love equally because we are all neighbors in Christ. We are only capable of showing this kind of love when we are shown how to love by the Father. Mercy always has a cost, but if we, were, if we draw on the limitless abundance of God, He will supply what we need to be merciful. This call to be a responsive neighbor to someone in need is the basic elements of disciple, which calls us to love God and love one another. Mercy is one of those qualities that made people want to follow Jesus, that changed the lives of so many. If we can imitate that quality, we too can change lives. Bob has said it before that Luke 9, 51 is the point uh, in the Bible where we are in the shadow of the cross. I love that the point of this parable is mercy to all regardless. Regardless of who you are or what you've done. But mercy comes at a cost. 
The father paid the cost with his son, and the son paid his cost, paid the cost with his own life, so that the veil could be torn and that we could have fellowship one-on-one. He paid the cost that we could not repay. The cost was paid so we would no longer be distant, but we could talk like two friends. That mercy, uh, that is mercy, and to have mercy, you must love like Christ. Uh oh. All right. I just want to kind of sum this story up. The person, uh, the person bore the cost of mercy and love for their neighbor. That Samaritan took it upon himself to see, to feel, and to respond. That action is what it means to be a good Samaritan. In that same way, Jesus sees us as a neighbor on the side of the road, beaten up and left half dead from sin. He doesn't pass by on the other side of the road, but comes to us and pays the price for our healing with his own death on the cross. You guys will bow your head with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We just thank you for this revelation that you've given us. We ask that you will continue to fill our hearts with love and let us know what it means to love, and just help us show that love to our neighbors, even if those neighbors are our enemies. Father, just as we go out into the mission field, be with each of these people, bless their lives, and bless the fellowship that they'll have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.